Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Money laundering activity has been and remains to be poorly understood, even by some of the public bodies that need to address it. And money laundering has rarely been given priority. Uh, Too often, it has been largely ignored. Largely ignored. Those are important words uh, from former B.C. Supreme Court Justice Austin Collin. Now, this is not just a B.C. story or B.C. problem. B.C. is a haven for money laundering. Then that means that Canada is a haven for money laundering. And if officials aren't doing enough to to combat it, then it's something that should concern all Canadians, uh, not just residents of one particular province. But a lot of this does fall under B.C. provincial jurisdiction because much of this was going on in B.C. casinos. But there are some staggering amounts of money being talked about in this report uh, and some pretty terrible incompetence or maybe worse on the part of political leaders and law enforcement. Of course, there's federal regulators. Uh, that are supposed to be keeping watch over all of this, and, and that seems to have failed as well. So how did the problem get so bad in B.C.? And, and is enough being done right now uh, to ensure that it's not as much of a problem? Well, joining us to talk more about this particular issue is someone who's done a lot of important work on this story, has written extensively about the issue, uh, Global News investigative reporter Sam Cooper Joining us, and his latest uh, is up at globalnews.ca. Sam, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Like I say, I mean, you've written extensively about these issues, but as we uh, kind of go through this report, what it found, what it detailed, I mean, did anything surprise you, first of all? Uh, a figure surprised me. You know, uh, in my investigations, I, I estimated up to $2 billion uh, is, is a very likely estimate of uh, suspected drug money laundered through BC casinos going back to uh, the, the the early 2000s up to about 2018. And, uh, you know, I didn't have the exact, exact data, but my mind was blown yesterday when I saw the figure. Commissioner Cullen said that in 2014, in one year, there was one point. Billion, that's with a B, in large cash transactions. Those are transactions of over 10,000 in cash per transaction accepted in BC government casinos. So that's 1.2 billion in cash. He said that much of those, those, many of the transactions appeared to be proceeds of crime. So we can't say that's 1.2 billion in suspected criminal cash in one year, but a very a high number of that was, Cullen said. And furthermore, he concluded that it, in terms of most of the suspicious transactions, which, which sometimes is, you know, an, an, another red flag on top of a large cash transaction, such as coming in in bricks of cash or duffel bags, which much of that 1.2 billion I've talked about because was he says he concludes on all the reasonable evidence that this can be said to be criminal proceeds so that to me that just that blew open uh this scandal wider because we're now talking about likely over billions in cash that ran through BC casinos and senior elected officials were warned about this for years and uh, Cullen found fault that they didn't adequately move to crack down on this and those are just the high level findings. I'm digging into some of the deeper issues now but that's what struck me right off the bat. So let me ask this question. I mean, why BC and why BC casinos more specifically? What was it about this, this 
this uh, arrangement that that made it so easy and so desirable for these organizations and individuals? Well, in in Cullen's report, again, I'm still trying to parse the 1800. Uh, page document, but he does say and did say in his press conference following the release of the embargoed report, BC has been used as a clearinghouse, his words, for very sophisticated criminals that have laundered vast amounts of money, and this has fundamentally destabilized BC's economy, he said. He said that he couldn't make a conclusion on the exact uh, uh, quantum of how much cash is laundered, but at the end of the day, he said, does it really matter? We know it's a vast amount of criminal cash. And he did find that, uh, again, senior elected B.C. officials failed to act on repeated warnings. Uh, B.C. government casino executives almost never responded to very, very clear evidence presented to them by subordinates, investigators, police that they were accepting criminal cash. And in fact, these executives pushed back on any warnings with counter narratives that uh, Cullen found were inadequate, basically weak, fake explanations to justify this cash. So in the report, I can point to that, but I can go further in my own investigations, uh, which, uh, you know, I, I talk about in some of my research, an RCMP report in 2010 to 2012, they were investigating specific government casinos. They alleged that uh, these casinos were knowingly building private high-limit betting rooms for specific foreign gamblers that were known by investigators to be uh, connected to suspected international drug trafficking, and yet the casinos purpose-built these high-limit revenue rooms, uh, sorry, high-limit betting, which were the primary driver of revenue. So in my mind, that's a powerful case that the RCMP believed these casinos were built with uh, Vancouver money laundering in mind. They knew that this was not just cash. The money was going back to Hong Kong uh, for repayments uh, from the gamblers to the gangster drug trafficking loan sharks. And then it was coming back to Canada in wire transfers that looked legitimate, but it was coming into Canadian banks. And I'll end there by saying, you know, that is a that to me is an explanation of how this happened. And let me, let me add this. The RCMP investigation did not continue. It ended in 2012 for reasons including cuts in federal funding. Wow. Well, in, in terms of who was doing this, as you alluded to, and this report points to uh, individuals, organizations uh, that trace back to, to China, to Hong Kong more specifically. Uh, so these were foreign organizations, individuals, foreign money. So much of this was, was coming and going from outside the country then. That's right. Uh, the report, uh, the final report and the evidence in the hearings clearly say uh, this was uh, by design. This was an international money laundering scheme, which was effected mainly from wealthy uh, People's Republic of China businessmen with little or no ties to Canada who uh, were, came to Canada to gamble and use this uh, cash money laundering scheme, repaying uh, their... the so-called uh, loans they took out in parking lots, in, in, in bags of cash and gambled. They paid back their loans in Hong Kong and China. Uh, this, this is how it, it happened. This is what the Vancouver model is called. And uh, Cullen's report details that. Well, certainly an indictment of, of B.C. officials, but also of, of federal officials and, and federal infrastructure. I mean, you know, we have FinTrack that's that's supposed to be in charge of on top of all of this. Where was FinTrack in all of this? 
Well, you're right. The, I would say that's exactly right. It was a powerful indictment, first of BC politicians and, and executives in the industry, but uh, the second powerful indictment was a, uh, a rebuke of FinTrack, as you say, a vast information collection network and cullen came out and said clearly this is a waste of time and money fintrack is collecting all this data from uh, casinos banks uh, uh realtors sometimes realtors very often don't report but cullen said this almost always does not lead to police investigations certainly not prosecutions almost never so he called that a waste. He said RCMP's inattention to money laundering in BC allowed it to grow. He allowed it to grow. And so the recommendation he made was that BC needs to come up with its own provincial anti-money laundering unit and actually a provincial uh, independent commissioner of anti-money laundering that would uh, be accountable to BC's public and not the government of the day. So I see that as uh, Cullen's recommendations to get around federal failures and uh, BC government potential, uh, you could say, complicity in in this money laundering scheme. Although I should add that some are questioning uh, Mr. Cullen didn't find any corruption on uh, with anyone involved in the schemes, though he did find fault for inaction. And that becomes the big question, though. I mean, and you wrote a book called Willful Blindness, and maybe that's one of the explanations that officials just didn't want to know about this. They turned a blind eye to it. Maybe at some level it's just sheer incompetence, or or maybe it's something more sinister. I mean, can, can we point to one of those, or is it maybe a, a, you know an unfortunate combination of two or three? I think... Uh uh, it's a slam dunk to say it's an unfortunate combination of two or three. What what Commissioner Cullen didn't say is that, uh, it, well, what he said was he was not able to find uh, evidence of ne- nefarious intent on the part of any officials or executives. He said that he believed uh, there was a lack of will to take action. Uh, people were warned clearly that this is dirty money. They continued to accept it for years and, as I've said, made counter nerves to justify it. And yet, uh, so you can point to uh, incompetence, maybe even ignorance. I think uh, the evidence is very clear that perhaps a slightly more nefarious uh, motivation is possible and that this was tremendous revenue on the casino side for uh, this Vancouver model, uh, pouring into government coffers. Uh, and uh, the, the commission didn't even really touch on the related real estate, which my sources say is the proverbial, uh, pr- pr- proverbial iceberg, right? But uh, I do think that one, one area I should add where I, I and some others that you know have very inside sources were disappointed are there are direct allegations of a political corruption involving these transnational crime networks. These are in RCMP documents, and that really wasn't tested to any level in the commission. So I I personally think that evidence is out there that will prove very serious corruption if we dig deeper. And I can see the question, I mean, you know, we're talking about a lot of this in the past tense, but I don't imagine that this problem has, has necessarily gone away. Is it is it not as bad now as it once was? Or, or what can we say about the current status quo? What we can say in British Columbia casinos is uh, uh, these cash transactions, which are really at the heart of the the narrative here of the Vancouver model, are way down. There is no doubt that that type of open plain sight money laundering 
has largely been reduced. But as I've indicated, uh, the, the commission hearings only started to unpeel the layers that big five Canadian banks are receiving massive wire transfers from Hong Kong that are connected to the same underground transnational connected currency exchanges that were exposed in BC in this case. Uh, real estate developers, I don't believe, were touched at all in in this investigation or hearings. And uh, uh, beyond that, we can say that uh, we can say that people that should have been personally held accountable, I believe, according to the evidence, are still directly involved in casino money laundering and and. Uh, you know, believed drug trafficking activities. Let me give you one example. The very primary loan shark that was uh, at the center of these hearings and obtained some sort of what they call status, that is, he had a lawyer in the hearings. I confirmed outside the hearings, while he had status, he was arrested recently in Panama and found, according to U.S. and Canadian government uh, sources, with fake Mexican passports. He had also been through Colombia. Uh, we also know that fentanyl overdose deaths are continuing to rise in B.C., yeah. so the money laundering and the drug trafficking continues. It's finding other paths. Some pretty shocking stuff. Your latest on all of this, it's up at globalnews.ca. Sam, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thank you. Well, there you go. Sam Cooper, investigative uh, journalist with Global News and somebody who's written extensively about this problem and this public inquiry. The report yesterday shows just how big a problem it's been in B.C., which obviously by extension means, you know, it's a problem for Canada. Well, thanks for joining us here on this Thursday afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you. Plenty to get to uh, over the course of this hour, your phone calls included. But I want to begin this hour with a conversation about uh, where Alberta's going. Uh, Certainly, as uh, noted in this uh, Define the Decade report, the Business Council of Alberta, Alberta is at a crossroads. And we've had a a difficult, maybe even you say a difficult decade, but certainly the last six or seven years have been really challenging for Alberta for a number of reasons. Now, I think, you know, as we we start to turn a corner, there is some optimism about what the future may hold. But it's a time to to really think big about what we want Alberta to be, to think about what Alberta can be over the coming years and what's it going to take to achieve that. So this Define the Decade report from the Business Council of Alberta is about thinking big and about identifying areas where Alberta can be not just successful, but be a global leader. Getting there is not going to be easy, but uh, I think this report argues that it's, it's worth trying and that Albertans are, are up for a challenge. So joining us to talk a bit more about this project and everything that went into it and, and looking ahead to what the next decade could look like. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Adam Legg, president of the Business Council of Alberta. Uh, much more uh, at DefineTheDecade.com, the website for this project and this report. Adam, thanks for being with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. So, like I said, this has been a long time in the making. So to take us back to the beginning of this, the thinking process behind this project and, and everything that went into it. Yeah, uh, Rob, thanks so much. We uh, we started this project in so the middle of the pandemic when uh, Alberta, as you pointed out, just your intro comments, gone through about five, six years since the oil price crash in 2014-15. Uh, really uh, a recessionary time for Alberta, high unemployment, lots of our friends and families laid off. And um, you laid it on the pandemic, negative energy prices during that time, uncertainty about the future. A lot of people 
we're beginning to say are Alberta's best days behind us. Um, and uh, our organization began to have conversations and, and really begin to ask this, our question, well, what if that notion is wrong? What if, if, in fact, our best days are ahead of us? And so the project was born out of struggle and challenge, um, but, in a, but a desire to to paint a, a, a picture of the future that was optimistic and, and positive. Nancy Southern, one of our founders, um, really said it best when she said, I think that there's so much potential, so much opportunity with the world needs and that Alberta just needs to define the decade would be very purposeful about what we're going to pursue in the, in the coming 10 years. And so we embarked on a year-long journey of, of engaging with Albertans and listening to them about what they thought it was a good life in the next 10 years and, and working with stakeholders across the province about how do we build a plan to achieve that vision. Yeah, and I, you know, I like those words, build a plan and, and purposeful because that's what this is about. I mean, obviously, you know, it's important to understand trends, but this isn't, you know, an economic forecast. This isn't a prediction of what the next 10 years could look like. This is what we want it to look like, how we want to shape the next 10 years. So, you know, when you ask those questions of people, not just what do you expect, but what do you want? That's a much different way of coming at it, right? Uh, absolutely. You know, uh, as an economist myself, uh, I can acknowledge that uh, pretty much every forecast anyone, any economist ever does is, is wrong. So what we really tried to do is uh, work from the ground up and say, what do people want? What is the what is the vision that they have for Alberta? Uh, and they, they've told us they want it to be a place of belonging, a place of opportunity, a place of solutions. And then you go back and you, you, you figure out how do you build the plan that's going to create that. Um, and so we've put together this roadmap that will help um, Albertans, Alberta businesses, Alberta politicians, Canadian politicians uh, come together, rally behind this notion of this vision and the, the mission framework that we've, we've proposed um, and, uh, and, then, and then ensure that we can achieve that, um, not, as you say, from a, a forecast basis, but from an aspiration basis. Uh, so there's three uh, sort of categories or three visions, I guess, for, for Alberta's future missions. I, I think the report refers to them as feeding everyone. Mm-hmm. So that's sustainable and healthy food, energy solutions, low carbon energy, materials and minerals, and then healthy lives, medical and, and wellness advancements. Let's start with the middle one, the the energy mm-hmm. solutions, because obviously mm-hmm. a big part of Alberta's story has been the energy sector and, mm-hmm. you know, what the future of that sector looks like. So when we talk about the bigger question of, of energy solutions, what does that look like? Well, Alberta has a rich history in in energy, and uh, I think we're seeing right now, particularly with the with the realities of the the war in Ukraine, that energy security, energy affordability, energy reliability are top of mind for pretty much every global citizen. And so the world is going to need energy. It's going to need more energy, but we need it in cleaner, secure, and affordable ways. Uh, and so we really said, let's build on the rich history of, of Alberta's energy sector. Um, and that frankly, we're, we're not, uh, we're not ashamed to say that if there's global demand for oil and gas that Alberta, that Canada should be the number one provider of that. We should be a world leading exporter of net zero oil and gas. So we've got a number of companies committing to net zero here. So it's just about reducing the, uh, the emissions profile, the production process, but we should be. A global provider and supplier of that, but we should also be looking to the future for energy uh, solutions that are going to be needed uh, as we get closer to to net zero by 2050. So, looking at how do we uh, deploy carbon capture technologies, how do we uh, create uh, the, the hydrogen um, fuel of the future, 
and uh, and and incorporate that either from uh, from our natural gas feedstock or from uh, or or from electrolysis. How do we look to provide the minerals that are going to be needed for electrification? Alberta has a, a rich deposits of of minerals like lithium uh, that are a key component of electrification and batteries. How do we uh, ensure that Alberta's got a foothold in that future? And how do we take some of the uh, the bitumen, for example, in the oil sands? And not necessarily use it for fuel, but use it for uh, materials, carbon fibers that are going to be needed in, in all of our uh, products going forward, everything from smartphones, laptops to vehicles and aircraft. So there's a there's a, a, a huge potential for Alberta to play a role, not only in the, the current demand for energy on, a, on an ESG best barrel basis, but also in the energies of the future, like hydrogen, um, renewable natural gas, um, and, and many other technologies that will drive that. You know, and, and the part about feeding everyone, and, and it's interesting because, you know, maybe agriculture has almost become a, a second thought. We don't think of it as, you know, the major industry we once did. But, but I, you know, I think, you know, the disruptions in, in uh, exports from Ukraine has illustrated just how crucial it is that the world mm-hmm. have reliable producers of food. And Alberta has a lot of advantages in, in that realm. I mean, we do in terms of you yeah, know, yeah. wheat, beef, et cetera. But how do we build on that? How do we transform that to, to you know, the next level? Well, I, I think you're so right, Rob. We have tremendous uh, resource here in Alberta from an agricultural standpoint, but we've never, as a province, as a nation, really uh, tried, tried to plant a, f- a flag that says Alberta, Canada will be global leaders in this. And I, so I think we've really um, underplayed our hand. I think we have uh, left a lot on the table. I think we have not, we've underinvested in in the whole spectrum of agriculture and so now if we begin to commit to something like being a global leader in feeding everyone through healthy and sustainable food i think you'll begin to see innovation occur you'll begin to see more investment occur you'll see more infrastructure built to move our products to to market Um, you'll see more uh, people being interested in in studying uh, agriculture at at places like olds college you'll see more tech companies tackling some of the the agricultural opportunities Um, you know, and that that goes hand in hand with the the, the farmers and ranchers that are are working so hard, generation after generation, to make a go of it, to put food on our tables. Um, and uh, you know, I think they've been an under underappreciated, undervalued part of the Alberta story, the Alberta economy. Um, and instead of uh, leaning away from it, I think it's time for us to lean into into the agri-food and agricultural sector um, and all of the component parts that play a role in the future of ag, which include technology and innovators, uh, includes transportation logistics, uh, includes our post-secondaries. Um, I'm incredibly optimistic and bullish on on that, that part of the plan as well as you know, our, our deep history in, in energy as well. You know, the part about, you know, health tech and biotech and, and these emerging industries is an interesting one. And maybe people don't associate Alberta with those those sectors or those fields. But where do you see this as, as something that Alberta, you know, can, can take a lead on? Alberta has some really unique advantages when it comes to, to health uh, and, and medicine um, that, that people may not necessarily recognize. The first is uh, is the Alberta Health uh, Services, the AHS model. Um, while it's not necessarily perfect, it uh, it is one of the largest uh, health providers in all of North America. So there's a tremendous 
value there from an economies of scale um, deployment of, of services, but also the data that enables us that we could really tap into and deliver better outcomes for Albertans in terms of healthcare. Um, we've got tremendous research capabilities in, in our two major universities, University of Alberta, University of Calgary, in some really niche areas like virology at the U of A, diabetes research. Um, we have a Nobel Prize winning uh, uh, faculty member at U of A with Dr. Michael Houghton, um, who in conversation with him recently has been telling me, he says, I think biotechnology uh, is a critical part of Alberta's future. Uh, we have the University of Calgary, uh, the Hotchkiss Brain Institute doing some of the world's leading stroke research. We have uh, urology, uh, world leading urology expertise at the UFC. Um, and so you sort of begin to tap into those plus all of the really innovative med tech uh, life sciences companies that we have here that are, are putting together, um, you know, whether it's uh, wearables and those sorts of things are going to help make our lives better. Um, you begin to put together a, a medical and wellness um, opportunity for Alberta to lead. We're not going to lead everything in health and wellness or, or other parts of the world that specialize in different areas, but for the areas we're really strong in, um, we're world leading. And, uh, and I think that uh, COVID has only shown us how important not only physical health is, but mental health, uh, and that we can be a leading jurisdiction in some of those really critical areas. Right, and, and getting there, and that involves a lot, but I just wanted to touch on, on a couple of the big picture ideas here. The Alberta, you know, the idea of having uh, an Alberta mission agency, it's called, like uh, an agency that can sort of take a big picture view of all of this, and then also the idea of a, you know, a heartland economic region. So maybe mm-hmm. touch on those two ideas quickly. Sure. Uh, we've proposed three missions that you, we just talked about, Rob, and uh, what's really important, uh, history tells us, is that you need to you need something to guide those, but also they need to be independent of government arm's length. They need to be able to collaborate with business, with with the universities and post-secondaries. Um, if we think to the DARPA model in the United States, or we think of Alberta's history with AOSTRA, which was the oil sands technology research authority that really unlocked the potential of the oil sands, we need a model like that that can take uh, high-risk, early-stage patient investments that get ideas through to commercialization. Um, and so that's what we're proposing is, a, is an agency that would ultimately drive forward uh, the big picture of these three mission areas that we've, that we've proposed um, and, uh, and, and do it separate from government, keep it arm's length from government so that it doesn't get caught up in ebbs and flows of annual budget cycles and uh, electoral cycles. The other one is the the Heartland Economic Region. We're we're competing um, no longer with with just cities and just provinces. We're competing with areas like what's called Cascadia, which is BC, Washington, Oregon coming together uh, as a bit of a tech sector, clean tech sector on the West Coast. We're competing with the Denver, Colorado uh, Front Range area, the Salt Lake City, Provo, Utah area. We're competing with Silicon Valley. Um, for too long, we've been competing Calgary versus Edmonton, and we can't afford that any longer. So we're proposing a, a early to start as a, a, a region that would include Fort McMurray and Grand Prairie to the north, all the way down to Lethbridge, Medicine Hat, including the communities along the way, the regional areas, the indigenous communities that would come together and coordinate ideas around infrastructure, investment attraction, work closely with groups like Travel Alberta, Invest Alberta, and then begin to expand over time with our neighboring provinces, BC, Saskatchewan, even down to Montana, 
about competing at scale as a geography um, because that's what we're competing with. I mean, there there are uh, cities in, in Asia that come close to the population of our country. Uh, and if we're going to continue to try and compete uh, as just individual cities or even just a single province, um, we're going to lose the competition. So we need to be thinking at scale, and that's what the Heartland uh, region is all about. Very interesting. Much more on all of this. Again, DefineTheDecade.com. Adam, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me on, Rob. All the best. Adam Legg is president of the Business Council of Alberta. So they've launched this report, which, as he said, was about a year in the making. DefineTheDecade.com. Coming up next week in Calgary, HorrorCon. And our next guest is going to be appearing on Saturday, June 25th. That night, there's a special one-night-only event uh, in conjunction between HorrorCon and the Calgary Underground Film Festival, featuring our next guest and the screening of an 80s horror cult classic called Chopping Mall. Writer, comedian, film critic, Joe Bob Briggs is the man in question and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Joe Bob, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, so let me ask you this. I mean, you're coming up to Canada here. Is is the north uh, ready for the south? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a good question. I mean, I'm coming to... Uh, I, I'm from Texas. Uh, I've always thought of Calgary as the uh, Canadian Houston. <laughs> a lot of people say that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Has all the same things. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's uh, it's actually my first time in Calgary, but uh, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think a lot of people are too. Uh, so, well, you know, of course, for ten years you, you hosted Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater. You now been hosting, I think, now into season four, the last drive-in with with Joe Bob Briggs, which you know explores some of these these cult films from from you know the eighties. There's such a love still for these films. What where where does your passion for this come from? First of all. Well, um, I had a passion from childhood for uh, um, sort of weird, offbeat, non-mainstream um, films. And then uh, when I started writing about them in the early 80s, when most of these films were considered disposable trash, you know, I was working for a newspaper, and, and uh, reputable newspapers did not even cover these films. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was the first guy to start... Uh, start writing about them and um uh and, and it was controversial at the time because they were considered you know films that your mother didn't want you to watch yeah. and so um um th- there's been a sea change over the years uh in you know just interest in pop culture and so today um most young people are familiar with these films that uh that were considered trash in uh, 1984, <laughs> and and uh, uh, and and so uh, I've just continued to do the same thing. But the world has changed. Sure has. Yeah, I'm I'm a child of that era. I remember, you know, in in the sort of mid 80s when you had the first place open up in the neighborhood where you could rent movies, and yeah, you know, my friends and I we were probably watching movies we shouldn't have watched, but we were renting all kinds of of different <laughs> and obscure horror movies. Uh, we just binged on that stuff, and it just feels like, I don't know, some, something was lost uh, along the way. Yeah, I, I don't, uh, 
you know, there's a fascination with the 80s by the millennial generation and the post-millennial generation. And I'm not entirely sure of what causes it because I lived through the 80s and there was just as much... Were just as many bad movies as good movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and there was, it wasn't all it, it wasn't all fun, um, but um, there's there's a there's a reverence for these movies that were uh, these low budget, especially horror movies that were um, shot in the eighties um, that you don't find um, for you know. You don't you don't find that kind of uh, interest in movies of the '60s or movies of the '90s, you know, and so uh, and so uh, you know frequently when I appear somewhere, oh, let's show an '80s classic. You know, that's that's become a term, an '80s classic. Yep. And of course, I think I think what you're right. Probably a lot of it had to do with the uh, advent of the of the VHS um, revolution, where for the first time people could take movies home and that was just a wild west the the uh, mom and pop video store had all kinds of uh, uh films that you wouldn't normally uh, uh rent except except they had those lurid uh boxes and uh people became uh, uh fascinated with uh you know the forbidden yeah well, yeah, I know a lot of these movies found life, obviously, on, on VHS, like like Chopping Mall, that they're going to be part of the screening next week. It did have a studio release, but it's not like that was like a, a box office hit by any stretch. Yeah, well, it had a, it had a, I mean, studio, it had, a, <laughs> it had Roger Corman's studio released it. It was, uh, New World Pictures released it. Uh, that was a very uh, low-budget kind of indie studio, so... Uh, uh, but yeah, it was. But it was definitely made for the drive-in circuit, the grindhouse circuit. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, today it's not as though horror movies aren't being made. You know, there was some franchise. I mean, the Saw franchise was was a huge success. I mean, we had the whole run of you know, kind of the found footage horror genre. What, what do you make of what's being being churned out today? Uh, well, you know, there's actually there are actually more horror movies being made today than ever before. Um, the problem is they kind of disappear into the big mountain of streaming choices that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's never been a time in history when you could just watch any movie from any era, <laughs> any genre, any time you wanted on any device you wanted. Um, we lost a little bit when we entered that era because... I do think that there's something about people sitting in a theater watching a movie together that is sort of in our genes. Uh, it, it's 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 the ancient way that people have always enjoyed entertainment, and when you take that away, uh, it's it's not so much that the um, it you know the experience suffers. You 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 can't. You, if you watch a movie alone on your phone or whatever, and it's a wonderful movie, it's a fantastic movie, um, what's the first thing you do? You bore 10 people trying to tell them about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you try to describe it to all these people who have not seen it because you miss that communal experience of, of uh, watching it together. 
And so uh, I, I love to do these events where we where we have uh, everybody in real live theaters watching, uh, sometimes watching on the original 35 millimeter print. Um, I'm always amused when somebody says, I didn't know that movies looked like that <laughs> you know, because they've never seen it. They've never seen an actual film print. Um, and so they don't, they've never seen the, the, the vivid image and the, and the, uh, surround sound on, on a, on a film, except for Marvel blockbusters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, what about the, the drive-in? And it feels like maybe there's been a, an attempt, you know, at, at a comeback. I, I've seen, you know, there, there have been some that are popping up and, and even some kind of one-off events that the people have been doing. There's still, I think, a lot of nostalgia around the idea of the drive-in, but you know, all that land's expensive. And, you know, I mean, it's it's tough to maintain, but that, that's, that's something else that there's a real fondness for, so that nostalgic fondness for, isn't there? Yeah, there, there has been a major comeback of the drive-in, and uh, it was boosted by um, the pandemic right. simply because um, uh, for several months at the beginning of the pandemic, or maybe even more than a year, um, in, in, many, in, in many states, I don't know about Canada, but in many states, the only, dry, the only um, movie theaters that were legal to be open were drive-ins, yeah. and so there were um, many people rediscovered the drive-in um, during those months uh, because it was guaranteed to be safe, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and and th- they've continued that habit of uh, of going to the drive-in, and uh, so a lot of, a lot of drive-ins have been revived. It's a it's a it's a good thing. It's an optimistic thing. Uh, drive-ins are usually get destroyed by the land value goes up. Right. It becomes more Build a condo uh, valuable instead. to yeah. put a shopping yeah. center yeah. there than Something to have a drive-in. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. So the uh, the film that's being shown here next week, you're going to be a part of this uh, this screening. It's called Chopping Mall uh, from 1986, right. I think, as we mentioned. So, what's um, what's special about this film? Well, um, it's just it's it's just Easy on the eyes, uh, um, '80s popcorn movie. It's, it has no, it has no uh, serious uh, underlining meaning. It's just a, it's just a fun time. And I actually, we're we're choosing that one because um, uh, the film festival is fond of that one, and uh, so the, uh, the, uh, the 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 people that I'm going to uh, screen the movie for. Uh, specifically wanted that movie. It's a movie I've hosted quite a bit simply because it's, uh, <laughs> you know, the, 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 prim- the premise of the movie is that uh, uh, I, the most uh, popular shopping mall uh, uh, creates an army of robots to do security and uh, some teenagers sneak into the mall uh, to a party one night and the robots are not amused and uh, carnage ensues. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's a robot movie. It's a teen, uh, it's sort of a teen sex comedy and it's a, uh, um, and it's a horror film. 
<laughs> What's the connection? Roger Corman is a pretty important and influential guy in Hollywood, a director, producer, you know, wear of many hats. So what's his, his connection to this uh, obscure horror movie? Well, Roger Corman is probably the most prolific filmmaker of, of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and yeah. 90s. <laughs> in that uh, he had a he had a low budget um he was a started out as a director was always a producer uh became a distributor and um uh Roger Corman's shop was always your first stop in Hollywood in your career so Francis Coppola made a movie for him Peter Bogdanovich made a movie for him uh, Jack Nicholson made several movies for him wrote movies for him uh, he's where you got your start in uh, Hollywood. So he would take young filmmakers, young actors, young directors, young writers, and uh, give them a lot of leeway, um, but basically tell them what exploitation elements he wanted to be in the film. And uh, this is one of those films. It was the first directorial effort of a guy named Jim Wynorski, who has now directed over 150 movies. <laughs> um, it was... Uh, uh, it was a, a money winner for, for, uh, it had some other title, but once they changed it to Chopping Mall, it was a big hit. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, the, the screening goes seven o'clock, uh, next Saturday evening at the Globe Cinema in Calgary, June 25th. And as mentioned, you'll be appearing earlier in the day at Calgary Horror Con. Uh, much more at your website, joebobbriggs.com. Joe Bob, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us here today. All right. Thank you for having me. All the best. There you go. Uh, Joe Bob Briggs, uh, writer, comedian, uh, movie critic, host of Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. And uh, as mentioned, it's going to be a Calgary Horror Con, June 25th. And then uh, that night, the Globe Cinema, in uh, partnership with the Calgary Underground Film Festival, a special live event and screening. So if you've never seen Shopping Mall, which I'm guessing most of you probably in that camp, uh, your opportunity to see and experience it uh, with... Uh, with Joe Bob Briggs. So that's uh, that night, June 25th. More details, calgaryuntergroundfilm.org. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.